Well, I think we keep in mind that a lot of the immune system is in the gut. And so when we can improve gut health, and that is gut integrity, anything that's associated with immune responses should be in a better state of readiness. So if vaccination is vaccination time, right? So if the gut health is healthy, then your vaccines have a better chance of working. A whole new era of communication in the pet food industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the global pet food industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Wilbur Ellis Nutrition. Make one call, find it all. Wilbur Ellis Nutrition, your partner for pet ingredients and services. Trow Nutrition, the science of ingredients, nutrition, and blending. Kemen Nutrisurance is your pet food and rendering partner every step of the way. Pro-Ampac is changing the future of sustainable pet food packaging. Learn more at pets.proampac.com. Welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the pet food industry. Tired of one-size-fits-all solutions that don't quite fit? At Wilbur Ellis, we're bringing custom back to the customer. We know that for your pet food and treats to shine on the shelf, you need to start with the best. After all, even the best recipe is only as good as its ingredients. From nutrition to preservation to blending and bottling, make one call to Wilbur Ellis Nutrition to find it all. We don't sell to you, we work with you. A true partnership to meet your needs. Follow Wilbur Ellis Nutrition on LinkedIn to learn how partnering with a purpose could double the power of your team. Hello and welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast, where our goal is to share research findings to help support the continual innovation in the pet food and nutrition industries. I'm your host, Dr. Kate Shoveler, and I'm here today with today's guest, Dr. Mike Sakeva, to discuss nutritional yeasts and how to apply them to the pet food industry. Thanks for being with us today here, Mike. It's my pleasure, Kate. Well, as a point of introduction, Dr. Mike Sakeva has a bachelor's degree in animal science from the University of Nebraska, a master's degree in animal science from the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign, and a PhD in animal science from the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. He is now an adjunct assistant professor at the University of Illinois, the vice president of research at the FL Emirate Company, and the president and founder of Sakeva Research Consulting. Mike is well known in the industry for developing innovative and scientifically proven products for animal food and pet food applications, and well known for developing research and innovation portfolios targeting new products that deliver consumer value and business returns. Finally, Mike is passionate about mentoring and leading technical teams and inspiring a culture of curiosity and innovation. I can personally attest to the fact that every time that I get together to discuss any topic in science with Mike, that he expresses these traits um, ad nauseum. All right, Mike, let's get started and talk about some yeast today. I thought maybe a good place to start is let's just start with the definition of yeast. Absolutely. That's always a good place to start, Kate. So yeasts are single cell organisms. Uh, They are at one time alive, and that is uh, a valuable aspect of what they do for humans because we use yeast to make all sorts of fermented 
beverages, such as beers and wines. Uh, Yeasts are valuable because of the baking industry, because we use yeast to make breads, for example. The important thing to know about yeast is they were alive at one time. They're primarily a source of protein and other nutrients that we oftentimes can use in pet food for different applications. And as we're going to talk about today, not all yeasts are created equal. All right. Well, that's a great place to start because I find myself personally in academia getting a lot of requests to explore the effects of one yeast over another. So how about we discuss what the uh, variability in yeasts on the commercial market are today? You bet. That's a great thing to talk about. I think the first thing to consider, at least for the markets that uh, we are working in in the United States, is to be sure that we understand the AFCO definition for the yeast. So if someone were to bring a product to me, I'd certainly want to be sure I understood, did it fit a definition? Is it something that we could be clear on in, in its purpose or use in the animal application, be it pet food or any other application? So certainly, you know, ask questions about how is it originated and then start to dig into what is, what is it that the manufacturer or the supplier actually can tell you about the yeast? Can they give you some information about the nutrients that are contained in their product? Can they give you any sort of information about the application, the benefits that might have already been proven? And are those consistent and repeatable in the, uh, the intended purpose? So those are some of the starting points. And then as you think about how do you differentiate the yeasts, recognize that just because a yeast is considered Saccharomyces cerevisiae, it may have been originated from a different purpose or different intent. So maybe it originated from a beverage manufacturing, or it may have originated from a a food application. So always talk about where did it come from and then how was it recovered? Mike, would you mind describing the difference in chemical composition of the available commercial products today? Yes, absolutely. Well, first of all, bear in mind that by AFCO definition, uh, the products that are going to fit into the yeast category are going to be defined by having a certain percentage of protein for the most part. And if they are alive, then they'll have to give some specification of CFUs or colony forming units per gram. So I think the first thing is bear in mind that there should be a minimum amount of protein contained in the yeast products in the market. 35% minimum, for example, for brewer's yeast, 40% minimum protein uh, for a primary dry yeast, and they could be inactivated, that means dead, or a live product, which means alive and having cell counts. So those are the primary things that would differentiate yeast in the market today by AFCO definition. Um, And then, of course, there are classes of yeast. So we have Saccharomyces cerevisiae for the most part, but then there can be Candida yeast, if it's a, a dried candida draw, uh, yeast, for example. The other differentiator which one can look for is the amount of cell wall carbohydrates or functional carbohydrates, and those would be the mannan oligosaccharides or the beta-glucans. And so one has to look at those. Those will not necessarily be AFCO defined, but they will definitely be something that could potentially differentiate products in the market. And then the final comment is some products are now fractionated. So they're not going to be a whole yeast. They will be a cell wall fraction. So maybe it's a purified beta-glucan or purified moss. And there are some products potentially that are nucleic acids. But I think the fractions that one would take a look at in the market today would be the 
cell wall constituents, moss, and beta-glucan. Okay, thank you for that very precise explanation. Does that mean then, Mike, that all yeasts, whether they be Saccharomyces or Candida, whether they uh, they carry the same chemical chemical structure of beta glucan and uh, MOS among all yeasts? Then, not necessarily. I can give you some history of the fermentation that the yeast was involved in can actually change the percentages of beta-glucans and moss. So, for example, if a yeast is stressed during its fermentive life, it may actually make more beta-glucans, okay? Or if it is in an active state of reproducing by budding, those little bud spaces are where some of these functional cell wall constituents are actually going to be originating. So I would say the first thing to keep in mind is the way the yeast were fermenting can affect the composition and the amount of the cell walls. And then the other important consideration is not all beta-glucans are necessarily the most functional ones that we are wishing to try to put into animal foods, pet foods. So there may be some specific beta-glucans that one would try to get a better idea of whether that yeast actually had that beta-glucan or not. Okay, so then when you then think about adding these different yeast products to a pet food, in particular then you'll be targeting a amount of either beta-glucan or MOS as your functional um, chemical component of that yeast that you're driving into the pet food? Possibly. And I would say the first question that I've learned to ask over my career is what is the job to do, right? So what is the job to do that we are trying to confer a benefit? So when we ask that question, we may come to the answer that we wish to focus on digestive health, or we wish to focus on eliciting a more favorable microbiome that is going to be exhibited in, let's say, a better stool for example, maybe less odors in the stool. Uh, So those are benefits that you wish to see. So the job to do is to find ingredients that have the characteristics that will confer the benefit. And so in those examples, I would look for ways that I could actually have a better microbiome in the gut of the dog or the cat. And we know that in certain cases, the the beta-glucans and the MOS will achieve that job, right? That those molecules are going to achieve what we wish them to do. Whether I can actually say I need 3% beta-glucans or 5% beta-glucans, I don't think we're that technical. I don't think the biology is developed to that, to that level of technicality. But I do think that having a certain amount of yeast that has a certain configuration of beta-glucans and moss will do the job. Okay. So, That may be a long-winded answer, but I don't want to confer the idea that the science is further along than what it really is. Yeah, that's that's important. And and of course, we talk a lot about on the on this podcast uh, where there are gaps in the research and where we do need further information to really understand how to apply 
the myriad of nutritional technologies that are out there. So thanks for um, really highlighting those differences. So when you use yeast to target gut health, um, how about you describe a little bit the differential effects of the consumption of adequate amounts of beta-glucan in contrast to MOS and how those have different mechanisms? Right. Well, um, the mechanisms are very complex. If you read into the science of how do these cell wall carbohydrates elicit benefits, you can get lost. I mean, it's it's like some pro-inflammatory, anti-inflammatory gut immune benefits may exhibit be exhibited. There may be some changes in the microbiome, but those microbiome changes may or may not be exhibited in stool differences. So I think a person starts to get themselves um, confused, if you will, by what am I trying to prove and what should I be looking for in a product? So I think in general what I see, Kate, is almost all yeast products will have some compositions of moss and beta-glucans together, especially if it's a whole yeast, right? So it's not going to be, it's really not possible to create a yeast with only beta-glucans without having the moss. That's They build a cell wall that has both. And so I think what a person would wish to say is, does this product have a consistent amount of both the moss and the beta-glucans? And if so, can the supplier provide that information to me and importantly, tell me how they measured it? Okay, so can I actually get some science into what they're saying? And then once they've given me some science, I think the proof is in the biology. So do you have any evidence in a dog or a cat or even a livestock animal that this product has any benefits that we can actually point to and say better stools, better coat quality, better disposition. Um, In the case of a livestock application, better feed conversion or livability. So I think those are the attributes that I would look for. And then I would start to ask for some science data to give me the confidence. And if they have the data, fantastic. If they don't, but they seem to have the right biology, then that's where we have a knowledge gap. That's where the science needs to be proven is to say, look, this product should have a benefit, but it hasn't been proven consistently in the target. Got it. And so maybe it is practical to talk about the application because you use the word better repeatedly in in your last description. So better outcomes when we add yeast to a diet. So if we think about who we're applying this to when we think about dogs and cats, are we going to see um, better outcomes with healthy dogs uh, or is there more of an application of yeast to dogs that are experiencing some kind of transient stress, for example? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Great question. I, uh, I've been thinking about this, in fact, this week a lot because I have a golden retriever. He's 10 years old, so he's a, considered an experienced dog, as in a senior pet. <laughs> um, so how do I know when there's something not quite right with my dog, Buddy? Well, he can be eating fine. He can be uh, having normal stools, but his disposition doesn't seem to be just quite up to what he normally, you know, would be right. So maybe his energy levels, not quite the same, or he just doesn't look quite as 
happy, if you will. I don't know if that's the right term, but I can tell that there's a difference in my pet. I think in those cases, the pet parent is going to react to those signs, okay? And they may actually say, well, look, may, there could be a supplement that I might want to try. There could be maybe a different kibble or food product I wish to try. But the pet parent is going to be the one that reflects on what they're seeing. Now, clearly, if there's an acute episode of diarrhea or something that's off, yes, that's when you have to look at trying to bring in a, a remediating product. Maybe yeast is going to be something that would be quite useful as a topical, for example. In fact, I was just taking care of my daughter's dog, and that dog is old, and it has some diarrhea issues. It has some stool issues. And so, of course, my daughter had a little sprinkle on, sprinkle on powder. And that is a case where probably something is out of whack in the gut, and maybe we can bring in a solution for the animal to actually be better equipped to deal with whatever they're dealing with. But I think the main thing here I see, Kate, is the animal can't speak to us except for what we can watch. And the best people that know their dog or cat are the pet owner. And, and we as scientists, I think we have the obligation to provide as much science as we can into the nutrition that is available to the pet parent. So if we give them solid ingredients and products from our pet food manufacturers, that's what we're supposed to do. That's our job to do, right, is to bring the quality science. Yeah, it's it, it, we have to figure out to how that pet owner sees that and what decisions do they make and where do they get that information from? Because right now, I'm fairly sure that if I go on to Google and type, my dog has diarrhea, what should I do? Um, I bet you pumpkin is the number one solution as an example. Um, so I think that there's also, how do we get this information in the hands of the consumer to look for the value of yeast in these products? So given what you said, Mike, is there any value? You used the word remediate when you were talking about dogs or cats that already have poor stool. But what about if you know that when you go hiking for the weekend that your dog always ends up getting loose stool uh, during those hikes in contrast to the week? Is, is there evidence that the supplement of yeast before a stressful event may help to reduce the impact of the stressful event, whether that be heat exposure, increased activity for the weekend, um, exposure to a virus, bacteria, etc. No, that's a great idea. And I'll harken back to my livestock days. And when I was a younger man, I did a fair amount of work on preconditioned, preconditioned cattle. Okay, so what's that concept? The concept is when cattle are going to be brought in from out west and put into feedlots, there's a preconditioning period for which during that time they're getting ready for the journey, right? So they're given a little bit more of an antibiotic regimen. They might be given some additional feed additives to help bolster up the immune system or the, or, or the rumen in this case. But the whole concept is that you already know you're going to stress the animal, so you might as well give it the best chance of defending itself when it gets into the episode of stress. Same thing, if a pet parent 
would know that their journey, whatever they're going to do, is going to stress their dog or cat, then that's an absolute time to react accordingly and be proactive with the nutrition, okay? You know, I think particular cats can be very stressed out on changing their regimen. I have a son who has four cats, and you change one thing and the cat gets really stressed. (laughs) Or can, right? So... Be mindful of that and also be mindful that we don't know necessarily what causes some of these things to occur. So I think always keep a vigilant notion that the best nutrition is the best defense, right? So yes, you can talk to your veterinarian if you have an acute episode or your pet has, but remember that that pet deserves the best nutrition we can afford to give it. And when we do that, I think their behavior the way they are a member of the family will tell us that we're doing the right things. So if we know we're going to be putting the animal into a stress moment, let's be on our guard. Let's do the right thing. And yeast can be part of that solution. Yeast is a good source of protein. It's a good source of these um, moss and beta-glucan carbohydrates that can be useful for the pet as well. So I think it does have a nice fit into these sorts of uh, pet food formulations, whether it's stressful or just high nutrition products. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people can't appreciate or don't appreciate that if your dog is or cat is relatively has got a relative consistent life and they're operating just at optimal, you know, just surfeit of nutrition, that any of these challenges actually puts them at risk of developing nutritional deficiencies because those responses require nutrients to mount, um, which means that you've at least transiently um, uh, increased the requirement. So on that basis, when we think about yeast and you focused on the beta-glucan um, more so as a prebiotic and um, the MOS um, as a prebiotic with a unique um, mechanism. It, it binds pathogenic bacteria particularly. Um, if you have those two nutritional technologies and you improve gut health, what other cascading physiological benefits do you see when you see improved gut health? Well, I think we keep in mind that a lot of the immune system is in the gut. And so when we can improve gut health, and that is gut integrity, anything that's associated with immune responses should be in a better state of readiness. So if vaccination is vaccination time, right? So if the gut health is healthy, then your vaccines have a better chance of working. If there is some kind of an unknown stressor that you may not have anticipated or you may not even be aware of, this is a fall time of season like a lot of dusts and allergens are in the air. Well, we, we sneeze, so do dogs and cats. So if you see these things happening, you know that there's probably something that your pet is incurring And that is probably related to where we can help the gut because so much of what happens goes through the gut, whether it's nutrient absorption or immune system activation, those are places where a healthy gut makes a big difference. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's, it's all intertwined um, in a very elegant manner that we're still trying to determine what all the pathways to that are. So as we then think about its application, um, 
I will honestly say I see yeast in pet foods all over the place without an intended target in terms of a benefit. Why do you think that is, Mike? Several reasons. I guess I can reflect on that with firsthand experience. There may be a first use in formulating toward cost-effective protein. So if the pet food manufacturer is looking at managing supply chain and the cost of their protein ingredients, they know that yeast is a consistent hopefully a consistent price and consistent quality. So that is the first thing that I've seen in my experience is many pet food manufacturers will use yeast at, yeast at 1% to 3%. Some may actually use it up to 5 or even 10% of a formulated kibble for the protein value. That's what I see. The second is yeast is a good protein and it's got flavor components. So, you can see that there will be hopefully a benefit in flavor or aroma and certainly no, no negatives. So that's a benefit that people will point to is that, Hey, I know I can get quality protein at a fair price and it could actually cause a good flavor profile. And that's good for the formula. And if the pet readily goes to the food, that's a good sign that you've got a formulated product that works. And then, of course, yes, there are many, many products that are available today that will be positioned for health and wellness in some way. Okay, that's a broad term, but digestive health is usually what you typically would see is people saying, hey, I want a digestive health product. And so much of what we see today in the pet food industry is coming over from the human food um, marketing, if you will. So whether it's a probiotic, prebiotic, postbiotic, biotic biotic i think a lot of pet food products are now containing yeast or other microbials simply because of the so-called health benefit so whether it's proven or not we'll see but it's certain they certainly are there yeah my snap my first snappy question is do you think this is why most dogs like beer (laughs) (laughs) um you know i think actually what we see or i've seen over my research is there's a aroma and then there's of course the taste right so i think dogs will react very positively to the aroma and then you'll see secondarily they may react positively to the flavor right so and dogs are naturally curious i mean they're sort of indifferent omnivores is what i describe them as they'll eat just about anything once (laughs) once yeah once or more if we let them but i do think that they find that that aroma naturally attractive and uh, i think the flavor tends to be more from the data that i've seen in summary literature yeast appears to have more of a consistent benefit for improving palatability or acceptability of kibbles compared in in dogs you'll see that trend more consistently than you will in cats but cats are cats can be finicky yeah that and that makes sense there might be something different that cats as obligate carnivores are responding to in terms of aroma and taste and and dogs have a very superior sense of smell um so we might not even know specifically what they are detecting in those products. So when you were talking about inclusion of yeast uh, across pet foods, 
you said that some pet food companies have used yeast products up to 10% of the formulation. Um, my understanding with kind of the upper limit of uh, the inclusion for yeast is really um, the nucleotide com- um, uh, components of the yeast in particular. Is that correct? It can be. Yeah, the nucleic acids can cause some issues, uh, particularly, particularly with dogs and certain dog species. Um, so one does have to be careful about that. Um, I think also people would be concerned about causing some issues with loose stools as you go to higher use rates. So I, I would not recommend going to 10%, but some formulations and some manufacturers have tried it. I don't know if they're actually including it at that level, but they've certainly tried it in their research formulations. I think one has to be cautious. And again, Kate, I would say, know what the yeast is that you're using or you're purchasing people are buying and be mindful that if you do get a formulated product that works, don't always assume that every yeast is interchangeable. If that makes sense. Okay. You have to definitely be looking at those chemical components and ensuring that you're swapping similar chemical components for similar chemical components with the same inclusion. Yeah, you bet. And I think that's where research can be very useful, that there is a substitutability that we can prove, right? That certain products can be substitutable against one another, but not always. And we need to know the intended purpose of why we have it in the formula And I don't mean to in any way be negative to purchasing people, but sometimes that information is simply not apparent to them that, you know, I, I didn't know that this one wasn't the same as that one. I just assumed that they're all considered to be yeast. Yeah. And I think that it also makes it really difficult ensuring that we have clear and transparent communications to the professionals that we ask to communicate our the benefits of our diets to and the owners because they all come come under one label so this makes the i'm going to put it in air quotes but you know it this makes the quality of yeast sounds like all yeasts are created equal and in the case of every single ingredient we know that's not true for a myriad of ingredients and not just yeast. So understanding when you're replacing things and ensuring that you're replacing it with a similar product um, is critically important. And you and I are talking about supporting claim sets and maybe for the pet food manufacturer, it's really important that they produce a consistent product. So if they change an ingredient that changes the dog or cat's response to that total diet, people will leave those diets. They don't like inconsistency in the effects that diets have on their animals. So um, if they transition off of one um, skew of the diet to another and it contain different amounts of those chemical compositions that are inherent to yeast, then you could have a very sudden change in, for example, stool quality, which for sure our consumers notice all the time. For sure. No, and I think that's a great point that mindful that yeast at one time were alive and doing something, right? So we had to recover them from a, a fermentation. The way that they're recovered, the method of drying and recovering the yeast can make a difference. Um, the consistency of the raw material supply. So one yeast may originate from a particular 
manufacturing process. Another could be considered to be yeast and come from a totally different manufacturing process. So be mindful that that can make a difference. And a small inclusion of something such as yeast, let's say at 1% or 2% of the diet, can affect the entire formulation. It can affect everything in the formula, right? So 98% of everything else can shine and be better, or it can actually be detrimental because the yeast or something in the yeast is causing a negative effect. So I'm not trying to like be a scaremonger, but I just want to make sure that people understand when you get a good quality supplier and you understand the product, that's when I think that you can find the applications and the value. Yeah. And, and part of that will be really understanding what your target inclusion is to ensure that you have that consistent benefit. Sure. And, and measure it if you can and measure something that's, I'd say something that makes a meaningful difference at whatever level of application awareness you're targeting. So when you and I speak to other scientists, we can talk about, you know, phenols and short chain fatty acids and stools, right? I mean, that's fine. But when you talk to a pet parent, it's totally different, right? Can you pick it up from the litter box? Does it have a malodor? Is it going to make my pet in some way behave differently? I mean, know the indices for which you're trying to confer the benefit. Yeah, definitely. The last uh, question that I was going to ask you was really about what data exists for the supplementation of yeast to improve dog or cat health beyond gut health. So you've alluded to um, to mood. You've talked about availability of some um, some other nutrients. Where is there data in the dog or cat to support the supplementation of yeast? Sure. I think if you would dig into the scientific literature, and some of this is all actually originated from your lab, uh, Kate, the benefits on the immune system have also been demonstrated when dogs have been fed yeast, particularly dogs under stress. So if the dog has been able to consume a kibble for a period of time that has been enriched with yeast containing beta-glucans, for example, there is evidence in the blood of immune, um, I would say a lift in the immune system of the animal. So that's a good thing. And I think that's the science that one would actually like to see that says if you have beta-glucans, and I would specifically point to a beta-1,3 glucan, there can be a perceived and real benefit in the measured immune system response. Okay. So that's another benefit of feeding yeast and having the cell wall carbohydrates complement the digestible protein that also is going to be provided by the yeast. Definitely. And what about mood? Can you tie this together for everyone? How the gut and a good uh, immune response uh, can alter mood? Well, the science is, I wouldn't say it's murky. Uh, It's a little bit less clear, but I think there's a definite um, bit of evidence that would suggest the gut and the brain are interacting and the gut sends molecules to the brain that can be uh, interpreted by the brain as sensing mood of sorts. And that will affect itself or exhibit itself in the pet, either hopefully showing signs of calmness or less agitation, perhaps. Um, We also know that in certain cases, certain amino acids can actually be 
metabolized, for example, into serotonin or those molecules that have a sense of calming or well-being. And again, those are provided by certain ingredients. Um, yeast in particular can be a source of tryptophan, for example. So I think there's some emerging evidence that the constituents will affect not only the essential amino acids, but also some of the other molecules that can then be sensed by the brain. So it may not be one thing in the formula. It can be a different set of ingredients, all of which contribute to these better feelings of wellness in the pet. Sometimes I also think when the pet feels better, the pet owner feels better and the two feed off of each other. Right. So I I think as you well know, your mood can affect your pet's mood. Yeah. Which, which also means um, that if you improve the mood of one or the other or both simultaneously uh, that you get really a holistic benefit uh, of using yeast. So, so maybe uh, what really needs to be done is yeast products need to be simultaneously marketed to both pets and humans as kind of a uh, build the mood in your household type of approach maybe would, would work. And uh, we also already know that dogs and cats share uh, their microbiome when they're living in a house. So it's inevitable that you're not going to have some, some interaction between the pet and, and the, the owners. So just another layer to that. Really interesting. Well, uh, thank you, Mike, for that. I I would uh, like to maybe give you the opportunity as well because uh, FL Emirate does carry a yeast um, product. Would you like to describe a little bit the attributes of that yeast product? You bet. Um, Yeah, Emirate's been in the business of recovering brewer's yeast from the beverage industry, the brewing industry, for more than 142 years uh, in Cincinnati, Ohio, the man manufacturing facility. And uh, Emmert has had a legacy of providing yeast to commercial livestock and now to the pet food manufacturers on the attributes of consistency and sourced primarily in the United States and qualified. So not just any yeast is used in the Emmert processing but only those yeasts that have been able to be selected based upon their nutrient characteristics, their consistency, and then the intended purpose in pet foods has been primarily in to create flavor, so palatants in pet food products, and then also as quality sources of protein, and in the case of uh, health and wellness, the beta-glucans and the MOS. So really it's been a bundled benefit approach in terms of marketing Emirates Brewers yeast products into the livestock and pet industry. And there are several different products that are available based upon the needs for specific end uses. So higher proteins and better, more consistent uh, profiles of the constituents that are intended for the use. So it's a long history the website's fantastic. Emmert can uh, certainly provide quality products to both uh, pet food manufacturers and palatability companies. Fantastic. And today's podcast has certainly given me ideas uh, to come back to you with for future research, as uh, we have already uh, collaborated with sled dogs and looking at the efficacy of your product, too. And I look forward to, to exploring other avenues with Emmert as well. So 
to kind of uh, bring our podcast uh, to a close, I wanted to spend the last few minutes uh, talking to you about your advice for young professionals in the pet food industry, whether that be in the ingredient industry or the pet food industry as a manufacturer. Um, I was wondering if you could share what your top three pieces of advice for emerging scientists who are interested in being in the pet food industry? Great question. I, I'd say in, in my experience, the first thing that I would always recommend a student consider is be curious. Always be curious about what it is that you can be learning. And so if you're curious, you, you can find almost anything to be interesting. So number one, be curious. Secondly, be committed. Do not give up easily. If you're going to become a scientist or in almost any discipline, a career doesn't happen in a day, a week, a month. It happens over years. And so be persistent enough to keep with it, even if you don't think you're making a difference, because you probably will be making a difference at some point. And the third I would say is run to the rain. And what, is, what do I mean by that? In any career, you're going to find people that are the rainmakers, the people that will give you opportunities and let you solve big problems. And if you find the rainmakers, don't shy away from them. Run to them with your, with your enthusiasm, if you will. Most young people tend to become, well, most young people are very enthusiastic initially. So run to the rainmakers with your enthusiasm, and hopefully they will give you opportunities to learn and grow and develop in your career. Those are pieces of advice I can give to young people that are interested in the pet food industry. A fan, fantastic piece of his, pieces of advice there, Mike. What about the three key attributes that you look for uh, in potential mentees of yours and employees of the FLM Emirate company? A willingness to be accountable. So if you are given something, be accountable for what you're asked to do. That's one attribute. The second is be willing to communicate. So learn how to give a summary of what you know. So don't be bashful with your findings, if you will, and know how to communicate. So your communication will dictate, in many cases, your career path. The third attribute is become persuasive. <laughs> You cannot do anything by yourself that's of any great substance. You must become a team player, which means that eventually you will have to persuade other people to see a vision that you would like to have them see, and you will buy into their vision as well. So be flexible enough and be able to be that team player. But at some point, be persuasive with what you think is the right way a project should go, for example. Know how to communicate what you think you know and be willing to put in the time and effort to learn and stick with it. So those are things that I look for, Kate, when I look at young people these days and attributes that I'm trying to hire toward. Uh, fantastic. And my last question, because often our young people don't think that we continue to seek out mentors. Who are your top three mentors, if you feel comfortable sharing that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, probably the first mentor that I ever had in my career was George Fahey because he was on my committee. 
So George was one of the people that helped form me as a young scientist when I was getting my master's and PhD at Illinois. And back in those days, back in the 1980s, there was a lot more, well, I shouldn't say this, there was a rigorous standard for how a graduate student was trained by people such as George Fahey. So I learned how to be a good writer, good speaker from George. So I consider him to be a mentor. When I was at, at Purdue University, Bud Harmon was my boss, and Bud taught me how to become not just an academician, but I would say a business academician, so how to run a program as a young assistant professor. So Bud is a dear friend, colleague of mine. And then when I went to ADM and spent 25 years at ADM, I had a boss, Leif Solheim, and Leif Solheim taught me how to do research in a commercial setting at the scale of an ADM. So you had to go from being a scientist to being aware of executive leadership and their demands and how you would actually talk about science in executive terms, but never lose the substance of the science. Okay. So those people actually over my career were very formative. They were very helpful. And I consider them to still be dear friends professionally and personally. Excellent. Yeah, I, th- I, I would agree that I think of my mentors, I always say very fondly, they're very important in your lifetime. And they come in and they, they go out, but they are part of your journey, whether they're there for just a couple of things to help you along the way, or whether they've been there your whole career. So I'm, um, I, I would think that George Fahey ranks pretty top of the line for most of us. Well, with that, Mike, thank you very much. I look forward to talking to you again in the future and have a great day. Well, Kate, thank you very much for the time today. I'm happy to have spoken about yeast and I hope that people have gained a better appreciation for the different opportunities to use yeast in pet food formulations. Thank you again for the time.